Welcome to the Life After ECT podcast. In this episode, we'll touch on some news and then follow up with guest audio from electroshock survivor Lisa Morrison's amazing three-part series about her experience with ECT. In U.S. news, there are two new ECT lawsuits, one in Missouri and the other in Florida. See the show notes to view more details about these cases. There will also be links on how you can file a lawsuit, as well as how to report your injuries to the FDA. If you've been injured by ECT, please consider looking at these resources. Not enough people are aware of these bad outcomes. By participating in litigation and adverse medical reporting, this will help raise awareness that will hopefully lead to better recognition of these injuries and future help for those harmed. In UK news, patient safety activists have recently published several important pieces on ECT efficacy and regulation in England, or lack thereof. I encourage you to check out the work they're doing. And that's all I've got for news. Here's part one of the Lisa Morrison series. Hi everyone, um, I'm actually just going to be reading three pieces that you can find on my website www.lisamorrison.co.uk um, and I'll begin. The following three part, part log arose after agreeing to be interviewed about my experiences of receiving electroconvulsive therapy, ECT, by the BBC Northern Ireland. The purpose of this is to share my views, experiences, and questions arising from facing the reality that I had received ECT on far more occasions than I had remembered. I have also since doing the interview received some of my records, which had been requested because of my sketchy memory. These validated issues that I've raised through my work, which were quite challenging at times and distressing to read. This is a bog-standard reflection of my thoughts on ECT and the system in which it was delivered as I try to make sense of my journey through mental health services. It has helped me take what felt overwhelming and too big and translate it into a narrative which I hope um, will contribute in some way to positive change. I have not tried to give all perspectives or reference multiple research papers. This is just my story. I intentionally refer to the system and not individuals as I do believe in the most part people wanted to help. So part one, um, it's on my blog site, is loss and anger. Here I'm talking about my background, um, the effects on me of ECT, informed consent, and the issue of regulation. So background, in October 2017, I was flying back to Northern Ireland after nearly five months in a treatment centre in South Africa. I'd been away from my precious children for nearly six months. It was the first time in years that I felt hope and possibility stirring within. I was also nearly three stone lighter after detoxing from two antipsychotics, three tranquilizers, um, an antidepressant and a sleeping tablet. 
I had gone into the center after eight years in and out of the local psychiatric inpatient unit. And there were more occasions than I can remember of being stitched and stapled in the emergency department following self-harm. Suicide attempts found me in recess on one occasion and on another in ICU on life support. I'd lost my marriage, my job, and hope. In August 2013, my hospital notes say, feels that the medical team had lost confidence in her and due to this, she, that's me, um, does not have confidence in herself ever being able to have a normal life. Subjective, yes, but how I felt. I'm lucky still to be here. So the dates that I received ECT, and on each occasion I had the full 12 sessions. December 2009 to January 2010, September 2011 to November 2011, May 2012 to June 2012, September 2014 to November 2014, November 2015 to January 2016, it's a bit difficult reading these dates, October 2016 to November 2016. I also had 12 sessions when in a psychiatric institution at the age of 19 and again at the age of 27 in South Africa. How did I feel about getting ECT at the time? At the age of 19, I was terrified. I'd been in a lockup ward in an old psychiatric institution, and I think the the film One Flew Over the Cookie's Nest had come to mind. Um, not that I properly remember. However, my experiences in Northern Ireland were of relief. I wanted ECT because it meant that when general anesthesia was administered, that's what they do. Um, I didn't have to feel or think anything. I could float away into oblivion, away from the pain, heartache and turmoil, the flashbacks, voices and self-loathing, the mess my life was in. There is something just not okay about that for me. My views now with a few years distance um, and, and on my own healing journey are different and you can hear about this in part three. What were the effects of the treatments? Dissociation as a result of multiple traumas, as well as very high quantities of various psychiatric medications at different points in my life, can and have affected my memory. Yet some of the memories I have lost were at times when I was not on high doses of meds and functioning very well. How do I know I don't remember? My long-suffering husband, yeah, is rather like my personal external memory drive. Since moving back to the family home, there haven't continued to be times when we realize significant chunks of my memory are missing. For example, I took a career break when my son was just a toddler and registered as a childminder. I did this for a whole school year. In 2018, I met with a friend who mentioned that her boys had talked so affectionately about me um, in, during the time that I had minded them. I had no memory of it. When I got home, Gary had to show me the um, protective film that we'd had to put up on single, single glazed glass doors my children's birthdays, first days at school, significant events that happened to them. 
childhood memories. I made them character birthday cakes, which I wouldn't remember but for photos. Friends Gary and I made in Northern Ireland. Groups we belonged to. Holidays we went on. My graduation for my honours degree in 2008, a big event I remember nothing about. I remember very little from the eight years in and out of crises. So informed consent. According to the Oxford Dictionary, informed consent is permission granted in full knowledge of possible consequences, typically that which is given by a patient to a doctor for treatment. Given that I was glad to get ECT because of the anaesthetic, I now question my actual capacity to give informed consent. I also wonder if ECT is, according to the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, NICE, recommendations for acute treatments of severe depression that is life-threatening as well as catatonia and a prolonged or severe manic episode, what capacity does one really have to make an informed decision? And when information leaflets is given, what does it say? I know I did receive one on all those occasions. Was there any reference to long-term memory loss with specific examples of what this might be? Perhaps if I had known I could lose significant memories about my children, it would have made me think, think twice or think differently. I don't recall it referencing the fact that there is no clear scientific evidence for how ECT works. Was I made aware of NICE guidelines suggesting psychological therapies being tried first where appropriate? Given the best and worst case scenarios in the leaflet? But then I've forgotten so much. My husband is very clear that he was desperate and afraid for me. As he says, he would have tried anything. From his perspective, it did help. Short term, the first few times but not thereafter. He also says there were no other options offered. I saw my CPN, Community Psychiatric Nurse Weekly, was put on increasing doses and variations of medications and was hospitalized frequently. How was it all explained to him? If anyone knows the reality of caring for a loved one who is seriously unwell, you'll know how little space or energy there is to actually research these things for yourself. Regulation and monitoring. And how is ECT regulated and monitored? In Northern Ireland, how often have the RQIA inspected these facilities? How is data gathered about ECT? Is there a record of which patients did or did not receive nice recommended psychological therapies? Is there a record of who had ECT without giving their consent? In my case, there has been no longer-term follow-up. Shortly after the end of treatments, a score sheet was filled in, and nothing more. Are the standards and information given to people, including carers and supporters, consistent everywhere? The charity Mind states, it's very difficult to know how ECT works or how effective it is. Many different theories have been suggested, but research hasn't shown exactly what effects it has or how these might help with mental health problems. NICE guidance states in 3.2, and, and on my website, um, there's links to these. 
states, um, there is no generally accepted theory that explains mechanism of action. An electric current, strong enough to induce a seizure, for which there is no clear scientific explanation for how it works, should surely be strictly regulated and monitored. Those still in support of ECT should surely be strongly advocating for this, especially if they are the person administering it or making decisions about people receiving it. If this were a physical health treatment, would such vastly differing standards exist across trusts in the UK? And I've got a reference to a paper about that in 2019, an independent audit. We talk about parity of esteem, but what does this look like in reality? Finally, I do believe it is against my human rights, the right of freedom from torture and inhuman treatment, liberty and freedom, and no discrimination based on disability, to not have the power to legally refuse this treatment, a treatment that has no clear evidence of how or why it works, and how it is, and with it having impacted my life so negatively. My husband and I have spoken extensively about this, and I now have an advanced directive. He supports me whatever the future holds. And yet our decision is not legally binding. This information appears in the leaflets that I was given on numerous occasions when detained under the Northern Ireland Mental Health Order 1986. In part two, I discuss ECT being a last resort, the problem with diagnoses, and wider systemic issues. Appendix one, what do I mean by trauma-informed and responsive? I refer to trauma-informed and trauma-responsive in these blogs, but believe that this is a word we can bandy about with little context. When thinking about this, I often refer to the work of Dr. Karen Treisman, clinical psychologist, trainer, and author who teaches about trauma-informed organizational culture with the following principles and values in her book, A Treasure Box for Creating Trauma-Informed Organizations, Volume 1, 2021. She names these. Safety and trust. Relationships, connections, and humanizing services. Curiosity, reflectiveness, empathy, compassion, and understanding. Strengths, hope, and resilience cultural humility and responsiveness, agency, mastery, choice, and voice, communication, collaboration, and transparency. And Dr. Treisman also covers the very broad spectrum of what we mean by trauma. These are the values and principles I refer to when using those terms. They were very much modeled in my relationship with BBC journalist, Niall McCracken. Given how much poor practice I have experienced when bringing my lived experience to various platforms, I felt it was a good opportunity to highlight what I believe to be good practice. Appendix 2, Good Practice, Trauma-Informed Values and Principles in Action. I want to thank Niall for the way I felt he honoured trauma-informed principles and values in many ways. At all points over the months we spoke, I remained in charge of what I chose to share and had the power to decide at any point if I no longer want to participate. I was given background information about the content of the piece and was kept updated on progress regularly. 
Everything was clearly explained, including the stages and way these pieces are progressed. Safety protocols were excellent in terms of ensuring I understood the extent that my information would be shared and the impact that this could have. I felt my well-being and not my story was the priority and valid inquiries were made for me to consider the impact on my family. This was not done in a paternalistic manner and now saw beyond what would be considered my complex history. This could have been seen as a risk and affected whether or not someone was willing to trust I was well and able enough to do this piece. Niall showed great humility and never presuming to know or understand in depth about some of the issues I raised. He was open to learning and rarely listened. He didn't shy away from difficult conversations, but asked questions sensitively. I knew he really cared about the issues and people affected. I felt heard and that my perspectives mattered. Whatever BBC Northern Ireland legal responsibilities are, it was the way in which Niall conducted himself and his genuine concern and interest that helped me feel safe and able to share something so deeply personal with him. How we are with people speaks volumes. Thank you. I hope to see you for part two. Thank you.